Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side. All right, and welcome back to B-Side. I'm Tom here, and today we're going to be discussing THX 1138, George Lucas's first feature-length film from 1971, and the nature of dystopian literature, dystopian, excuse me, dystopian literature. I am here in my home in Connecticut. I have a lovely double IPA from Beard, which is a, a nice brewery. I have no idea where they are, but they make lovely IPAs if, if you are an IPA fanatic. And I would recommend them. Um, they're not sponsoring this show, but I wish they were because it would save me some money. They're a, a really good brewer. But anyway, moving on to our film today, um, what I want to talk about with the uh, with THX and with um, th- this idea of dystopian literature is really to give kind of a taxonomy of dystopian literature. What I think is the, the way we kind of divide it up and then talk a little bit about the arrival of dystopian literature and nationalism. Okay? And those, those ideas, how those ideas relate, how this idea of dystopia comes in or is thought of at the same time as nationalism. Okay, and so I'll say this, in, in film and fiction, we see three types of dystopia. We have the 1984 model, that's George Orwell's 1984, not the the year, but uh, George Orwell's 1984, in which the future is shaped totally by repression. We also have the Brave New World model, in which the future is shaped by pleasure. And then lastly, we have the Mad Max model, in which the future is shaped by anarchy. I would say that if you kind of dive into science fiction, you could probably unearth another few models. I am not the most wide-read in science fiction. I'll I'll come up with that up front. But from my experience of dystopian literature, that's really what we see. We see these three models. Um, Totalitarian um, in, in terms of repression, right, where you're kind of forced in, forced to be a cog in a machine. Totalitarian in terms of pleasure, everything you do is, uh, is designed to be pleasurable, is designed to be easy, is designed to relax you. Um, it, you know, it's, a, it's a total pleasure experience, right? That's why it's totalitarian. The model here is, of course, uh, Huxley's Brave New World. And the Mad Max model, which is very different from the other two, and we'll get into that. Um, I would say the first two differ markedly from the third, as the anarchist future of the, the Mad Max worlds, it isn't shaped by a totalizing state, right? That's really the difference here. There isn't something that is controlling you absolutely, Um so another way to phrase this uh, taxiometric schema is to bifurcate between the kind of John Stuart Mill conception of dystopia, uh, and, and he might 
have actually coined the word, we're not really sure, and the Thomas Hobbes conception of dystopia. And Hobbes has that famous phrase from his uh, early 1650s book, Leviathan, in which he saw a lack of state or governing structure as resulting in a war of all against all, i.e. in the absence of a state and a stable system, individual and tribal violence will rule the land. Now, by contrast to this, John Stuart Mill saw dystopia as being the um, a state that doesn't run right, right? A state that harms the liberty of the individual, right? And Mill famously writes on liberty, about, um, about how to acquire the most liberty for each individual in his kind of utilitarian schema. We can debate about the legitimacy of this, but we're not going to today. Um, but, but Mill kind of has this idea of the state as, um, as having total control over the individual as being, uh, as, as being a dystopia, right? As something that goes against the way a state should work. The initial theorist of dystopia might very well be Aristotle. And if you look at his book four from The Politics, he there is looking at the differences between what he calls true constitutions and their opposites. These are the perverted constitutions. Um, the three species of true constitutions that Aristotle gives us are royalty, aristocracy, and constitutional government. His dystopian alternatives are described as transformations through a perversion. That is, dystopian governments are transformations of working governments. They're not independently situated. They don't arise on their own. They are governments that are working that degrade. So if we look at the the different perversions of government, if we look at royalty, the perversion of royalty is tyranny. If we look at aristocracy, its perversion is oligarchy. And if we look at constitutional government, its perversion is democracy. And this is something James Madison understood, right? That democracy is a problem. Um, and we, <laughs> that's another thing we won't get into right now, but it's really interesting to see how uh, how Madison draws from Aristotle in terms of the kind of founding philosophy of America. Um, what makes these alternatives perversions as opposed to true constitutions is that they no longer aim for the well-being of all of society, but only a part of society. So royalty um, may... Uh, may be good for kind of controlling and ruling and shaping all of society. It has that kind of control. It, it wants to create a rich society to hand it down to the next generation. Um, however, when it becomes about the ruler's luxury, pleasure, etc., that becomes tyranny. Um, aristocracy, oligarchy, that's when just a group of people rule. You could think of uh, uh, Florence in the early modern period as being kind of an oligarchy, these kind of uh, wealthy merchants slash banking families controlling the, the, that city-state. 
And then constitutional government is democracy, where it's just the mobs are ruling. State dystopias tend to explore managerial iterations of broad political instincts. Now, what does that mean? 1984, again, the, the Orwell novel, imagines the absolutist managerial state as derived from a collective sense of government. So the state then becomes designed to manage everything in someone's life, right? So that, that you become, again, cogs in the machine of the state. You could think of uh, Mao's, in, in China, Mao's great leap forward in the late 1950s and early 1960s, in which these kind of peasant collectives out in farming were reorganized into kind of town-sized communes where everybody was given a role and the, the farming was managed by uh, a hierarchy connected to the state. Right? This is, this is the, the managerial state on, uh, uh, you know, on steroids, so to speak. Um, Brave New World, the Huxley novel, is a little different, and it tries to manage the managerial state as applied to individual needs and wants, as opposed to the, the 1984 model, which looks to break the individual or imagines the individual being broken, the boot in the face, right? And for people who don't know, Brave New World is a science fiction book in which the future is... Um, it's it's managed by the state, but there's this drug called soma that gives you this kind of sense of well-being, um, and you are supposed to you know take the drug all the time. Um, sex, you have easy access to sex. There's really no commitment as a part of that. Um, th there's just this kind of sense of constant pleasure. You can imagine almost as, as if it's a world in which. Playing video games makes you money. Now I know for a handful of our population, there are people who make video who make money playing video games. However, you know, imagine everybody doing that, right? And and that's kind of how Brave New World is. However, this this these pleasure mechanisms are distributed by the state, and there are certain things outside permissibility. One example of this is Shakespeare. Nobody's read Shakespeare. And so at one point, the main characters go into a, a zone that's on the border of what the state controls, and there's a person in there who they see as backwards and native and, and all these things, um, who has a copy of Shakespeare's works and is reading them, and this is, you know, uh, a major plot point. But these are the iterations of managerial political control. There's the, the boot in the face— there's so much pleasure you don't even notice that you're being controlled. Um, in both cases, the source of the nightmare is obvious. It's the managerial state, um, the ethic of collective action towards a collective end, imposing torture and other means of control onto individuals who act upon their feeling of atomization, of not being part of the state, of not being part of the collective, um, 
of not running gleefully towards Big Brother, as the main character does in the end of 1984. Big Brother being that kind of image of the state. There's this picture of this person who's called Big Brother, who's supposed to be running everything. And he is, um, there's an image of him in the end, the main character runs towards that image. And it's unclear if this person even exists, but um, it's just kind of the embodiment of the state. And so we might not call call this the absence of civilization, that is the torture, the violence, the indulgence, but an excess of civilization, a flood of orderliness. And what we see in both Brave New World and in 1984 is that civilization hasn't broken down. Now, dystopia would imply that civilization has, but really it implies the state is only functioning for itself and not for the community at large. And so how the state manages this trick is that it orders everything. It manages everything. It keeps things in its place. It keeps things in its box. It does not allow for contamination. This is kind of a civilizing thing, right? It, you know, being overly orderly, being overly conscientious is very, very much uh, an aspect of being civilized, being clean, being neat, being tidy. This all factors in. However, what these books reveal, what this kind of vision or these multiple visions of dystopia reveal is that an excess of orderliness is a problem, right? An excess of chaos is also a problem. If we look back towards the Mad Max model of dystopia, right, where, you know, people are just wandering around a kind of desert landscape, getting uh, beat up or having their blood taken from them, as we see in Mad Max Fury Road, or, or whatever. There's, you know, a complete lack of civilization. There's just these kind of tribal units that, that fight each other and have these, these backwards systems of religion. Um, but its opposite is also dangerous. An excess of orderliness, an excess of civilization is also a problem. And looking back towards those kind of anarchic dystopias, um, anarch, anarchic, excuse me, it's, it's not taking place in the South Pole, it's anarchic dystopias, they function very differently. And so that kind of neatness, that kind of civilizing categorization, that management is gone. Right? In Mad Max, it's over. Um, in uh, uh, The Walking Dead, The Walking Dead is a great example of this, where you no longer have a functioning state. It has just fallen away, and these different kind of charismatic leaders have taken over. Um, and while these charismatic leaders present a kind of ordering of society, you know, really what allows their leadership to have any kind of purchase on on any of the individuals in the show is the absence of order outside of their very, very limited realm of control, right? Um, and so even when we look at, like, let's say, the Mad Max world, those films, in the first Mad Max, there's a little bit of order. Mad Max is working for something like a police force at that point. Um, 
we don't know really where it is. It's probably in Australia somewhere. But by the time we get to Mad Max Fury Road, it's become a complete collection of tribes, right? You know, there 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 isn't anything like a civilization anymore. There's just the remnants of it. Um, and in the categories of the living and the dead in the works of George Romero, or as as I said before, the the Walking Dead television shows, here we see nodes of civilization. Um, we could see that in the different Walking Dead, uh, excuse me, in the different George Romero movies. At one point in his, in his third zombie film, I think it's the, I think it's the Day of the Dead. I I'm, I always get them mixed up, but it's the one with the military compound, right? And in this one, there's a group of military officers who have an underground compound, and they've managed to survive by being inside of this. Um, because it's underground, uh, the the zombies are above ground. They they can't really get to them. But eventually, they do. Not to spoil it, but um, really, what we have there is also a, a a lack of orderliness with survivors doing the best they can. Throughout The Walking Dead, we see Rick and gang. Rick is the main character, and he has a collection of people around him who die and then join up and da da da. Um, they move from place to place, and you see they come upon leaders who have organized a society. However, as soon as Rick meets a leader, usually what happens is we find out they're a charismatic madman, be it the governor or um, Negan. Negan is the other one. And so they're kind of outposts of order, maybe, experiments in government that lack something essential which eventually themselves evolve into a dangerous survivalist mode of existence. These nodes of governance really don't work. Um, by the time we see Mad Max on the Fury Road in the fourth film, it seems as if humankind has returned to a kind of pseudo-hunter-gatherer model of living. They're ruled over by mortal gods, not by presidents or even Big Brother, but people who tell you they can take you to Valhalla, to a sort of heaven. Um, and these, these mortal gods exercise brutality as leadership. In Lucas's THX 1138, his version of Newto dystopia, excuse me, is clearly very orderly. It is not the Mad Max model. Um, it, and it seems like it's closer to the 1984 model. We don't see an excess of pleasure um, their main character, THX, is not allowed to have sex with his female roommate. He does anyway, and he gets in trouble for this. Um, however, pleasure is not a really big part of this society. It, it really is more in the model of 1984, even though it seems like the governing officials are are less brutal. And we also don't have... Uh, a sort of identity or icon of the governing structure. The police who enforce everything are robots. The THX actually helps make them. Um, and, and so it's, it's a little different there. But there is an aspect of it that I want to kind of look at before the, the end of this B-side. And that is, um, that is this idea of consumerism 
as going on in, in THX. Now, we see at, at various points, THX goes in and speaks to or has confession with the god Om. Om is an, uh, a vision, hence Memling's uh, late 15th century vision of Christ. Uh, oh, excuse me, not vision, uh, drawing, painting, rather, of Christ. Um, that has been blown up and has become known as Om O O O O O, I think, four or five O's. Doesn't really matter. Um, and Om instructs through a, a recorded voice his followers to buy, 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 and be happy. And so, even though in Lucas's film, everybody shaves their head, everybody wears white, everybody follows instructions to the letter, they go to work when they're told to, um, they can only have sex with him they're told to if they're allowed to have sex at all, uh, there's communal raising of children, etc. There is also this idea of the harmonization of religion and consumption, right? And that the managerial state is interested in forcing people, or encouraging people anyway, to consume. Now, this is a 70s film, and it, it really is inspired by the student revolutions of the late 1960s, both in America and in France, um, and especially some of the ideologies that underlie them. One such ideology, I'd say, comes from, not just me, but everybody would say this, comes from um, the, uh, the Freudian Marxist philosopher Herbert Marcuse. And in his uh, 1964 book, One Dimensional Man, he talks about, uh, he talks about capitalism as a totalizing force. Um, that in a consumerist society made possible by an industrial society that existed before it and kind of still exists in the 1960s, um, what ends up happening here, according to Marcusa anyway, is that there's this idea of, first of all, technical, technological rationality, which has imposed itself on every aspect of culture and public life, um, what this means is how we look at things in order to, let's say, get the most out of them, right? What, what is the way we can arrange systems in the world so that they create the greatest profit for us? And so that is that would be a technical rationality, and Marcusa, Herbert Marcusa, has, has written that everything in our society including our culture and our public life, falls underneath this social control system or systems. Um, and we'd say this about capitalism as well, and capitalism as making this possible. Uh, and, you know, it, it, capitalism increases comfort, um, and that prevents people from really questioning the system in which they live under. And furthermore, capitalism takes into itself the possibility of rebellion. And so capitalism can produce, for example, very cheap editions of Marx, very cheap editions of 
Freud, of Freud's work, of Marx's work. And so those works, if you can buy them in, you know, your local Barnes and Noble for under $5, um, you know, the, like Dover Press makes these really cheap editions of things, you can buy them, you know, very cheaply, then they have been absorbed into kind of the capitalist system. And you are, you as, as a consumer, um, are being are being trapped within this system and you have no way out. So in better years, I guess, somebody like Marx or Freud finding their work would be a means of accessing something external to the technological rationality of a, a consumerist society. Um, instead, we have, you know, the, the most successful capitalist uh, dictating what not only what you're allowed to do because that wouldn't work right um, that would be the 1984 model you know the, the complete managerial model no this is the you know kind of the somewhat thx somewhat not model in which the perception of freedom is dictated you dictated to you by a capitalist class who does this by offering things for you to buy to give you happiness, which is including or inclusive of the great rebellious writers such as Marx, such as Freud. Now, Marcuse kind of mistreats Freud. I mean, Freud really was about, um, uh, about returning people to society qua society. Freud was not about overturning society at all. He thought his his analyses would help people um, shed themselves of their psychoses in order to, to become productive members of society again. So Marcuse uh, is, you know, a little aggressive in including Freud in, in um, amongst this canon of literature that can allow you to escape the system, so to speak. However, I think we still see the point, right? It's that you are totally controlled by a, um, by a consumer psychology. Uh, and this also disguises its, its disastrous effects, right? The, the, the kind of costs of this. Um, and I think that THX is doing something like that. Right, because consumerism, consume, 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 and be happy, as Ohm tells THX, that is, that seems to be something that would ally with Marcuse and the Frankfurt School. The Frankfurt School being the the philosophical school that he was associated with, and so I would say that in terms of these dystopian visions that THX probably is closer to the Marcusa vision than either the George Orwell or the Huxley vision, and certainly nowhere near the Mad Max vision, the anarchy vision of dystopia. Um, but it is interesting because, and I think a little bit 
confusing when watching THX. It seems like no one has the opportunity to actually consume that. You know, that seems to be the, the, the joke of the movie is that these people are supposed to be part of this kind of consumptive, awful society, blah, blah, blah. Yet all their moves seem to be regulated. We don't see them buy anything. We don't see a kind of shopping mall. We don't even really see appealing products. They they all wear the same outfit. They, you know, they all take the train together. What is there to buy? Um, but I think that's what Lucas is doing. Lucas is sort of joining the 1984 model, kind of with the Huxley model from Brave New World. But really, I think he's joining uh, 1984 with Marcuse's one-dimensional man. Now, in terms of when dystopias arise, KJ and I had an interesting conversation after recording the, the THX podcast and talking about um, you know, the rise of, of nationalism in the Victorian era and how we really see dystopian literature uh, coming after that. Now, utopian literature, you know, the, the literature of the ideal world. Um, you know, we can think of Star Trek, right, as utopian literature. You know, the, the reason why everybody in Star Trek is flying into space, into these these unknown locations, is that Earth has become a paradise, that there is no more want or need, uh, you know, that type of thing. Modern economics has fallen apart because everything is just so good. Um, that, that would be a, an example of a utopia. Um, the initial utopia from the 16th century was Sir Thomas More's utopia, in which he described really a, a kind of a communist state. Didn't use that term, but they, really that's what he's describing. Um, and of course, utopia translates to no place in Greek. So that was kind of um, Moore's point, right? Is that this is this is not a place that uh, exists or could exist. And I think Margaret Cavendish had a utopian book in which she travels, I believe, to the North Pole and and sees like this wonderful place with. Uh, this excellent government structure and these these beautiful events, something like that. You know, I read it and I don't even remember the title, so I'm going to jump away from that for now. Um, but what KJ and I talked about was how dystopian literature, qua dystopian literature, the things we recognize as dystopian literature, really come out after the establishment of nations and the nation state. Now, Really before, you know, the, the, the Victorian era, so the Victorian era is roughly 1830s to the first decade of the 20th century. Before then, the idea of the nation state is a little muddled, if uncertain. Really what you'd see is um, maybe kings and feudal lords and people would work for the feudal lords, but there wasn't this idea of the nation in the way there is today. This isn't to say that nationalism was entirely absent. If you look at Shakespeare's Henry V, there certainly is a kind of rah-rah-go-England attitude. However, in Henry V, they depict the, uh, the Hundred Years' War between England and France and how Henry V defeated the French at... Um, d defeated the French 
in France um, with a smaller amount of troops than the French had, and you know, so on and so forth. The for the most part, the people who fought there were nobles, royals, and hired mercenaries. So if you were going into war, you probably weren't the common man, a common merchant or a common laborer or, or something like that. Really, war was the, uh, the practice of elites. And areas, especially we see this between England and France, areas of France go to England and they go back to France over, over the long history of these two countries. Um, when Louis XVI says, I am the state, his state is fairly limited. It, it's not, it, he means all of France, but effectively he is not kind of ruling over the peasants, and the peasants themselves are not thinking of themselves as um, Frenchmen or Frenchwomen, right? They're kind of working for a particular feudal lord. This is even more dominant in Germany, which is, you know, until the unification under Bismarck in the 1870s, something like 500 separate principalities ruled by margaves and princes and, and all other types of, of political structures. And they would go to war with one another and they, they would battle. However, this also, this battling, this war, the, this idea of a kind of royal ruler was less about the nation and more about the ruler. And not everybody within the borders of a particular area saw themselves as Germans or Frenchmen. Um, they might see themselves under the rule of Person X. And yeah, and that was it. And Person X changes. X changes quite, quite rapidly. Um, and then the Victorian era comes along. And what we start to see is the romantic notion of the nation manifesting. And the Romantic era in, in um, German and English history is that which comes before the Victorian era. Now, the Victorian era is a, a British-centric way of looking at things. It's, you know, in the 1830s when Queen Victoria took the throne. But the Romantic era did occur both in occurred in a number of places, but in, in England and in Germany, and it was when there was this idea of kind of the exuberance of the soul, the uh, looking towards nature, nature, this, this kind of great expressionistic um, focus, uh, also a great era for philosophy as well. Um, and it was also a time when people start to started to see the community they're in as being better served, as being thought of as a member of a nation, as a community within a nation. Apparently Hegel, the, you know, the, the great philosopher in Germany of the early 19th century, uh, he was embarrassed, like a lot of people, that where he was working was, um, you know, was not part of a, a greater German nation, a greater Germany, right? And that he thought that all of these kind of backwater principalities should unite and become a greater country, a greater Germany. And that's exactly what happened. Um, we, we see in uh, the 1860s and 1870s, Bismarck, the great diplomat, 
uniting Germany together, and Germany becomes thought of as Germany, as one people. You are Germans. Um, you know, England kind of has more or less been on this path, but, you know, people begin to th see themselves as British subjects, uh, and we start to see the, the different countries of, Eng of Britain, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, as uniting together as Great Britain. This also happens in America. Um, until the Civil War, it is the American states are joined together. You never say, you know, um, you, you would always say America are interested in, something like that. You don't use the plural verb because the United States was a collection of societies. It wasn't one society. After the Civil War, where the South cannot leave, they, you know, they lose the war, they cannot leave the, the Confederacy of States, it suddenly becomes the United States is. Um, this is a, a move towards nationalism, towards a national identity as opposed to a state identity. And when we get into the 20th century then, and we begin to see this idea of the state as generating governing structures, such as management, and, and Germany was a place, you know, you had a, a, a very robust bureaucratic system. The first scholar of bureaucracy was Max Weber. He was coming out of this kind of uh, study of these German systems. He's a He's writing in German. Um, and so after you have this idea of the state as something independent of the people in it or independent of the divinely chosen ruler, that type of thing, once that has been established, then you begin to see dystopian literature arise. And especially after... Uh, World War One, when all of these grand states create the greatest catastrophe that people had known up to that point, right? It's France is very nervous that there is now a Germany next to them. Um, Germany up to the point of World War One had existed for about 40 years. It is still a fairly young country at that point. And, you know, France had been the greatest land military power there was, and now Germany is is challenging that. And then there's also all of these arrangements that Bismarck made between these different nations. Um, he called it the five three plan. It would be if you know, uh, be or excuse me, the the three two plan. Be one of three nations allied against two nations. Right. That that was the idea. So it was even the the kind of arrangements were national as opposed to the old days when, you know, the the Tsar of Russia was related to Queen Victoria, which is true, and was related to um, the people in Germany and was related to everybody else. Uh, you know, th those kind of family relations get replaced by national contracts. And so it seems like dystopia that is a contract between nations. And so it seems like dystopia or dystopian literature is not just a recognition of rule. Because after all, Louis XVI was a totalitarian leader. 
Henry VIII in England was a totalitarian leader. Both of these people were the state. What they said went. Um, However, we don't see the kind of totalizing control that the idea of a nation had on everyone. Part of this might be people couldn't really read in, in France in the 17th century or in England in the 16th century. I mean, that might be a thing. You just couldn't really communicate your, you know, your propaganda to all of these people. Um, and that might be the reason very much. But once we get into the late 19th and the 20th century, the idea of the state as independent of rulers becomes very much a reality. And I think that a lot of the first two models of dystopia, that is the 1984 and the Brave New World model of dystopia, um, they are responding to what is a fairly young ideology. That is the ideology of nationalism. What's interesting is that um, the, the sort of zombie apocalypse anarchy thing, that that really is about how much we really need a governing structure, right? We really need kind of a state. Uh, it's, it's almost in contrast to the, like the 1984 or the Brave New World model. In, in those cases, as soon as the state goes, usually because of zombies or um, we, we don't really know why in, in the Mad Max world. It just sort of has dissolved. I think maybe people have run out of water and it's driven them crazy. Um, but in those versions of dystopia, the absence of a state is obviously what is fueling the, the, the hellscape that these people are living under. And so while we might think of Brave New World, Mad Max, and 1984 as being of the same genre, I would say that the the sort of Mad Max, Walking Dead, George Romero canon um, are actually somewhat in contrast or in conflict with the 1984 Brave New World model of things. Because in, in Huxley's world and in George Orwell's world, it seems as if the concern is the managers, is the arrangers, is the civilizers. And, you know, as people who are kind of free and independent, and, you know, these are works of the West after all, and the West often likes to think of itself as free and, and independent, um, these writers are criticizing the excess the exuberance, the overreaching of rationality, of technocracy, of bureaucracy, the overreaching of civilization itself. This is Tom with B-Side. Thank you very much.